Welcome back to the Perspective Series, part of AIMA's Long Short Offering. Each week we bring to you leading CEO conversations from the alternative investment world. Our guests share their visions in a variety of areas, including how to attract and retain top talent amid the fierce war for talent, as well as how to navigate the increasingly complex operational scaling challenges and much, much more. The discussions are led by myself, Tom Kyo, co-host of AIMA's Long Short Podcast, and John Budzina, Managing Director and U.S. National Leader for Market Development for Alternative Investments at KPMG. Please do let us know what you think on social media, and don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on all good social media platforms. We hope you enjoy the series. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Uh, We're here today with Sean McGould, the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Lighthouse Partners. Welcome, Sean. Thanks, John. Appreciate being here. Excellent. Obviously, you run a worldwide investment firm based out of Palm Beach currently, but tell us a little bit about your background and how did you decide to work in finance to start? Uh, Sure, John. I grew up uh, about half my life on the East Coast in New Jersey and then uh, uh, went to middle school and high school actually just outside of Chicago. One of the things that I was always interested in, uh, starting in about, uh, I would say, the seventh grade, was just the, the stock market and various markets. I think part of that was growing up where I did, as there were a number of uh, CBOE and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, um, and just became very interested in, in uh, trading. Uh, didn't really, there wasn't really a term then alternative investments at that point in time, but uh, just the trading aspects in these different markets was really uh, fascinating. And that, that had a big influence on uh, what I wanted to do uh, study in college, and then do for a career after that. And what was the sort of the catalyst that propelled you to pursuing, uh, you know, the investment strategies at Lighthouse? And how did you get to Lighthouse? And- I was fortunate. I uh, worked directly after college at uh, Price Waterhouse and uh, was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to uh, interview with an investment firm that was based in Chicago, but moving out to Bermuda at that time, which was Trout Trading. Uh, I, I secured a position uh, at Trout, moved out to Bermuda, um, and my specific role at Trout was to uh, take some of the excess margin capital that existed within the fund and allocate it to uh, external trading managers. So uh, all of the strategies that we're allocating to, um, I would describe as, as hedged or trading-oriented uh, types of strategies. And I was really fortunate to have... Um, uh, kind of that break in my career to have that opportunity to go work at Trout and had a lot of freedom at Trout um, to go talk to some of the world's best uh, traders, hedge fund managers, uh, you name it. Um, I would speak to anyone uh, about investments and really learned um, about all different types of investing, not only within equities and futures and fixed income and mortgages and derivatives, uh, really everything. It was just a, a phenomenal opportunity to learn. And during that trajectory, I mean, what, would there be any really large defining moments for you that that propelled you to to the success that Lighthouse Partners has today? I think one one of the biggest things, John, was was when I came in there. I wouldn't say I had when I joined Trout. I didn't have tremendous uh, investment experience. I had a lot of experience um, doing due diligence and running a process on you know thinking about something from start to finish and. One of the things that I always focused on was just, you know, what type of, one of the things I learned was just what type of edge does a particular investment strategy have? So um, during the day, I would 
find strategies that would take advantage of inefficiencies at the market. And then at night I was told how efficient the market was. So um, I think both of it was phenomenal training, uh, John, because I do think the markets are uh, fairly efficient, um, but learning uh, where are some of the inefficiencies and whether that's um, from a transaction cost perspective, whether it's an information uh, type of advantage, um, a time advantage, um, those sorts of things uh, were really instrumental in my career. But again, one of the biggest things was just being expected to make money month in and month out. So um, it was great training in that respect, too, because the expectation was we were going to make money every month. And uh, I think at the time, you know, I really believed that could be done. Uh, still believe it can be done, uh, you know, today. And that's something that we've always strived for at Lighthouse is to try and produce really consistent profits. And I think it goes back to to some of the training I had, you know, over 25 years ago. And Sean, um, as you said, you you launched Lighthouse um, the turn of the century, so over 20 years ago. Um, so how has the strategy evolved, the firm strategy that is? You've talked about going out and making allocations externally. Can you, for the benefit of our listeners, explain a little bit about what goes on at Lighthouse Partners in terms of our strategy? Yeah, I think I, I think one of the, the big things um, that changed for us really started in uh, 2004 um, when we really created a, a, a platform. Um to house talent and whether that talent was internal to us or external to us. And I think when you look at how the industry has evolved, um, it's evolved that way. We've come at it a little bit differently uh, from others, but we didn't want to be restricted from investing with any investment talent simply because we didn't want to exceed some percentage of their fund. If someone was happy to work with us and we were 100% of their capital, that was absolutely fine uh, with us. When you fast forward 20 years from then and look at where we are today or 19 years, um, when you see how multi-manager platforms have kind of evolved, um, it really is very similar to, to the evolution that we went through. It's just we started by allocating capital um, almost exclusively externally um, and then over time have shifted uh, to more of a blended approach. But I think when you look at all of these platforms that have been built across the uh, industry, um, it is about harnessing uh, you know, talent. Uh, it's about having a common platform to, uh, to work off of. So I wouldn't have necessarily predicted at the time we were building that, that the industry would have gone this way, but certainly it suited um, how we think about the world of investing. Right. So the Lighthouse platform um, really touches on many different investment strategies. So how does Lighthouse determine, you know, on a monthly basis or on a quarterly basis to allocate the capital across all those internal and external portfolio managers? Well, Jen, let let me talk about a little bit just from a a theoretical framework, and then we we, we can dive deeper into any aspect. So one of the things, again, that, that uh, we believe and I believe across this, this industry is, again, more diffuse risk taking. So um, we want to have risk takers in uh, equity market strategies, fixed income, uh, commodities, uh, derivatives. Um, the second piece of that is we want that risk taking to happen um, across various markets uh, around the globe. So we want to diversify um, our investments geographically. We want to diversify them from a 
a time perspective. We want to diversify them from a market perspective. So we are, are searching and seeking out both strategies um, and the talent, the human talent to implement those strategies um, across the globe, across different timeframes. And when I say different timeframes, I don't mean just different geographic timeframes. Like we're, I'm sitting here on the East Coast and we have someone in London. I mean, also the timeframes that the investment strategies are implemented over. So that could be anywhere from uh, intraday to uh, you know months holding positions. So we start with that type of framework. And then we want to blend as many of those types of return streams, which as much diversification as we can um, into a, a portfolio. I won't go into the specifics of our, uh, of our funds or what they're doing, but, but each fund in this industry has something that it is after, um, specifically that it's trying to do. And if that's trying to do that solely within equities, um, then you're going to blend those equities and you're going to use a combination of quantitative approaches, um, I believe. So using optimization, using correlation matrices, using value at risk, using modified value at risk, um, all sorts of different approaches um, to try and help you come up with a better allocation engine to do that. But the first thing you have to have for an allocation engine to work, I believe, is you have to have uh, an advantage in the strategies that you're trying to put in there. So if you have great ingredients, um, you know, just like a good, uh, uh, a good recipe, if you have great ingredients, um, you're going to make something good. If you have bad ingredients, it's not going to taste as good. We need great ingredients first, and then we want to apply both quantitative techniques um, and qualitative aspects and things that we've learned over time uh, to create a, a, an optimal portfolio um, in terms of doing that. But it all starts with uh, the strategies and, and uh, the human capital that we have. And I would assume that leverage is amenable to some strategies better than others. Um, is, is that how Lighthouse approaches it as well? Absolutely, John. I think that when you look at the history and go back you know, several hundred years of where there have been financial blowups, it's generally a combination of leverage and illiquidity. Um, and when, when I think about liquidity in a broad framework, um, I don't think the markets are inherently as liquid as people, as people think they are. And especially in periods of stress, they become uh, less liquid. So if you're combining something with really, really high leverage that even has a remote tendency to become illiquid, uh, that to me is a, a potential combination for uh, losses. So we want to try and avoid that. And, and I think you said it exactly right, John, which is there are some strategies like equity strategies that are run market neutral. Um, I think you can leverage those, leverage those safely. There are other strategies like distressed debt um, that you certainly wouldn't want to put, put as much uh, turns of leverage on. And throughout my career, I've seen different episodes where funds or strategies have gotten in trouble because of a combination um, of those things. And, uh, you know, one of the earliest episodes of my career would, would have been long-term capital management, great positions, uh, pretty highly diverse, just too much leverage and couldn't hold their balance sheet. Um, so that's definitely a risk. When you look at uh, something like uh, David Askin and, and mortgages back in 1994, rapidly rising interest rates, um, lower liquidity in mortgage derivatives, um, again, led to losses. You know, I could add in others throughout, uh, you know, the past 20 years, but they do have commonality to them. 
and we want to avoid them. And also, John, we know we're not smart enough to predict everything that's that's out there or think of every scenario that's out there. So there has to be a cushion in terms of, uh, I think, pe- what people do in this industry so they don't uh, you know, cross over that line. And that really leads to sort of the real question of like, is alpha scalable, right? So you have many firms that are raising a lot of assets. Uh, so they're asset gatherers. Others are focused purely on alpha, but there's some blend there that works. And the question is how scalable is alpha? Yeah, I, I certainly don't think, Chen, it's infinitely scalable, but I, I think it's a little bit more scalable than people think. And I think part of the reason for that, if you look at a strategy, let's just say that's equity market neutral and you have a universe of securities that's liquid, that's 2000. And let's say just for sake of argument, you had to trade every, uh, you had to be a thousand long, thousand short. Um, the amount of combinations you could do with that is quite staggering. And each of those combinations or relative value combinations may have a specific alpha profile to them. If you couple that with timeframes, so how long are you going to hold these pairs? So is it a intraday strategy? Are you looking at quarterly earnings? Are you more fundamentally based and you're going to hold these for a year? Each of those timeframes leads to, uh, I would say, some alpha opportunities as well. So I think there's lots of combinations that you can put together. When you are simply long in equity, you're really subject to the market over any reasonable range of time. And then that company's fortunes, how they're doing fundamentally. But when I think you start doing relative value trading and long and short over different horizons, different time horizons, different geographies, I do think that alpha is fairly scalable. And speaking of time frames, obviously, there's a lot of discussion now about whether folks think that we will be heading into a recession both in the United States and around the globe. Um, so w- what is what is Lighthouse's view on sort of that topic? Yeah, I think the the, the view, again, from a, from a macro perspective, and some of this is informed by, uh, again, um, us, you know, looking at, at how people are positioning their portfolios um, uh, and, and doing certain things. I think coming into this year, the vast majority of, uh, of market participants and the hedge fund industry were expecting a slowdown and expecting a recession. Um, now, why hasn't that occurred? There's, there continues to be more ink written on that. Uh, but I think the some of the latest thinking on maybe why a recession or a slowdown has been delayed um, is just the overall strength of, of the economy, the amount of stimulus that was put into the economy um, after, uh, after COVID. Um, and looking at the different time effects of both fiscal versus monetary um, types of policy. So if you look at um, fiscal policy, it's very quick. It's a shot in the arm. You start sending people checks uh, during COVID, they put in their bank account, they save it, they spend it. That has an immediate effect. When you look at some of the more monetary uh, policies, if you are a company that has a locked-in financing rate for the next four years, interest rates haven't really affected you. They're only going to start to affect you when you have to go refinance. Um, you are seeing a slowdown, one of these impacts in housing turnover. So if someone has a 3% mortgage and they want to go buy a new house and now they're going to have to pay a 6.5% mortgage, it becomes an economic decision. So there are different lead and lag timeframes between fiscal and monetary. And we've gone through some of the biggest fiscal and monetary experiments 
we've ever seen. So no one's really seen how this plays out. Um, I think we would have been more in the camp done and still are that there has to be some impact to raising rates this quickly. The last time I saw it in my career was in 1994 when rates were when rates went up really, really fast. Um, different dynamic there. It did have a big impact on uh, credit spreads, on convertible bonds at a hard time then, mortgage strategies at a hard time then. Um, equity markets were a little bit more uh, sublime then because in 1995, earnings were so strong and it was the start of a tech cycle um, that you had then. Right now, it's a very different um, type of setup. And we don't rely heavily in any of our processes on saying we're in a recession, not in a recession, but the portfolios are certainly set up uh, a little bit more defensively uh, to weather the storm. And again, I I really think there will be an impact um, to, to raising rates this rapidly, but I think some of that impact is gonna come when people have to refinance things. Or again, if you wanna you know, move and you're in a house and it's just, it's the interest costs are almost twice as expensive as what you would, would have been paying. To me, those things have to have an impact, but when they show up, um, it's really hard to uh, uh, to predict that. Um, and again, that's why I like more diffuse risk-taking, focusing on idiosyncratic risks. And if you look at different markets, different markets have behaved differently this year. So the emerging markets have done a little bit better. Uh, Japan's done very well, and for very, very different reasons. Sean, you've talked about um, some of the central bank monetary policy. Um, you know, you mentioned what's happening in the U.S., but also, you know, we, we have that um, impact globally as well. Where I am here in the U.K., we've had the Bank of England also um, go through a series of interest rate hikes. Um, there is a, a feeling, though, that um, both the central bank uh, or the Bank of England rather here, and the Federal Reserve are going in slightly different directions. The Fed may be likely to slow down their interest rate, maybe halt it entirely, as opposed to what the Bank of England is likely to do. Where I'm going with this is, you've talked about um, about that impact. Is that priced into the market? Is any of that priced into the market yet? You know, what, what sort of impact are we talking about here? Are we likely to see a hard or a soft landing, either here in the UK or in the US, what's your sense of that? I, I think that the the Federal Reserve in the US um, has to be really happy with the outcome so far that they've seen. And I think it was absolutely necessary to normalize interest rate policy. Uh, again, if you were asking me my personal opinion, I don't think interest rates should ever be at, at zero. Um, I understand the, the theoretical framework they use of sitting there saying, well, we're in this deflationary spiral and, you know, real interest rates are, are negative and, um, and, and we've got to do certain things to, to combat that. Well, we were in the reverse situation now. We've got inflation rising. We want real interest rates to be positive to cool that down. Um, when you look at the forward and the, the futures markets of what the prediction is, um, you know, right now we, we do have, um, uh, I would say, normal real interest rates in the U.S., so about 150 basis points when you look out, you know, somewhere between three and five years on, on the curve. Um, and that's that's fairly typical. And then you see in the U.S., you see uh, the curve coming down uh, in December of 24. You see interest rates coming down and normalizing three to three and a half percent. And that seems fairly reasonable. 
when you really dig into to some of it, it's really interesting how things are being priced. There's still pretty fat tails within the distribution of uh, fixed income. Um, and that's because if we do get a hard landing, rates are going to go through that 3% and go through that, that floor. Um, do I think we're going to get a really hard, hard landing? I don't think so. I think there would have to be some uh, major uh, policy mistake um, that occurs. I think getting inflation under control is very important um, and not suggesting that the U.S. is, is exactly like uh, other emerging economies around the world. But you want to have stable prices and um, you want to have interest rates, um, you know, that reflect, um, uh, you know, normal policy rates. And and I think that um, taking it to zero, I don't know. We'll never know whether that really helps spur uh, a recovery in the U.S., um, you know, after COVID, after the GFC. I think that it helps the I think it certainly helped, uh, you know, banks. Um I think it's helped the financial system um, to have rates, uh, you know, that low. But I don't know what it really did economically um, all that good. So I don't think to answer your question directly, I do not think there will be a hard, hard landing. Um, but I do think there should be some slowdowns. And there'll, again, there'll be some structural friction because of where rates are uh, now and where people borrowed at um, in the past. KPMG is a global professional services firm providing audit, tax, and advisory services to many of the world's leading alternative investment management firms. To address the specific challenges and opportunities unique to alternative investments, KPMG has dedicated practitioners focusing on hedge fund, private equity, and real estate organizations. Our professionals devote their time to provide innovative and strategic solutions to alternative investment managers in areas ranging from strategy to operational and compliance functions. Through the knowledge of the industry-leading practices and customized technology systems, they provide advice and support that deliver value to these organizations and their investors. For more information, please visit kpmg.com. Sean, I'd just like to go back to a point that you raised earlier about the multi-strat structure. Um, Obviously, the alternative investment industry has been built on, sometimes it's a single strategy, sometimes it's multiple strategies, but it seems like a uh, continuation now of many multi-strats being formed. And the question is, you know, do you see that as the path forward for the industry? I, I don't think it's the only path forward, John, for the industry. I think there's always a need for specialized uh, risk takers. I think that the multi-strategy platforms um, have done a great job of, of aggregating a number of very specialized risk takers um, onto one platform and offering one fund. So if an investor um, doesn't really want to take the, the time or doesn't have the time, um, maybe it's better for them to, to invest with two or three uh, multi-PM firms that are really covering the landscape and uh, recruiting the talent, doing the risk management, um, doing the allocation, which is really important, John, which we touched on before, there are going to be other market participants who are just going to sit there at a point in time and say, you know what, I understand um, merger arbitrage. I really like that strategy. Spreads are wide. Um, I think there's going to be good returns going forward here. And that's really the only strategy I want to access. And I'm going to go to an expert in that space and, 
and maybe choose one or two, two firms to go do that. Or I'm really excited about uh, Japan and I want to make a, a geographic investment or I'm excited about the emerging market. So I think both approaches have room um, to grow uh, and prosper there. And I think a lot of it comes down to what the investors are after, what types of, of risk and returns are they after, and what's their own outlook on these strategies and the markets in general. And, and structurally, the portfolio managers have to choose whether they want to run their own business or what they would rather sit on a platform as well, right? We, we'll talk about that in, in a little later on, but it's that, in that also seems to be um, the velocity in which people are entering these um, multi-strat platforms now. Yeah, I think that there is a distinct choice for a number of um, a, a number of portfolio managers as to whether they want to run their own firm and what that entails, um, or working um, on a on a platform. And some can work very still autonomously and and look at their universe of securities and and implement their strategy. Um, but it certainly is it's much different now starting a hedge fund firm than it was. Uh, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, some of that has to do just with the talent you need to put it together. Some has to do with uh, regulatory uh, compliance, the requirements of institutional investors and what they expect of an operation, um, all of those things. So it has definitely raised the bar and made it more difficult, uh, John, to enter this this space, um, which I don't like. Um, I, I uh, like having it as more of an open uh, you know, playing field and and letting good market participants come in. Um, but that's not the way the industry has really uh, evolved. And I would say it really isn't how the, the securities industry has uh, evolved in a number of places either. So let's touch on that first point then. We talk about um, the ability to both attract and retain the best people um, for, for your firm. How do you go about doing that? I think that... Um, it, 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 it's both ways as far as recruitment, meaning the firm has a philosophy um, uh, that we need to execute on behalf of our clients. And if you have someone that's looking to join the firm and trying to recruit them um, and they don't believe in that philosophy or that operating model, that, that certainly is not going to work. Um, beyond that, I think you need a lot of flexibility um, to attract and uh, retain the talent. So, um, we want to make sure that it's going to be a good fit um, culturally. And I do think that uh, the, the, the culture of the organization is very important. And I would never distinguish between the cultures at different firms. I would never use the term, you know, bad culture, good culture. The cultures are different. And that's a, that's a good thing because people are different and they're going to be more comfortable at one place or another. The risk management philosophy um, would be different from one firm uh, to another. So is there flexibility in uh, certain some of the certain factor risks that people can take, or are all those factor risks going to be uh, mitigated? Um, so I think there's risk considerations. I think there's capital allocation decisions. How are those decisions going to be made? Is the capital stable? Um, am I under uh, some sort of guideline where it is um, formulaic, that if I lose more than X amount, I'm just going to be cut, um, or is it a decision? Is there collaboration across the groups, or am I more siloed in my approach? All of these things are slightly different 
um, across all of the the firms and play back into that culture how the firm is operated and what the individuals are uh, what the the individual portfolio managers are are looking for and I think that you know each of the uh, the firms that is large within the space. Um, I think some of those cultural aspects are, are uh, well known, um, but I think they're really important in any type of recruiting or interviewing process uh, to make sure there's a good match between uh, the expectations of, of the firm um, and what the individual desires. And, and there's been plenty of column inches written about it. And we, we hear about it all the time is that, you know, how intensely fierce um, the war on talent is, particularly in, in your space. So how do you assess uh, the landscape right now? Yeah, I would say it's it's very competitive, but I would say that when you look at, you know, most industries, um, uh, the top talent within the space is competitive. You know, if you take it to an extreme example, like professional sports, it's, um, uh, you know, it's it's hyper competitive and, and it depends on the structure of the teams and leagues and things like that. But you know, you're starting to see how competitive things can get even within U.S. college sports now with, you know, name image likeness and a portal open and the transferability of talent. So when you look at, at uh, you know, across industries, um, I think it's always uh, there's it's always highly competitive for that talent. And again, the talent is going to go to um, where it is treated the best um, as far as, again, from cultural aspects um, the financial rewards are important, but that that the freedom, the challenge um, of doing what they're doing, but it's highly competitive, um, and uh, uh, good portfolio managers have have a choice of uh, where they're going to work, whether it's with a multi-strategy firm like us um, or set up their own, uh, you know, firm and and move forward that way. And and the culture in a multi-strat firm, you're, you're global. You're multi-strategy, you live in a hybrid work environment, um, and you're trying to col- have collaboration ar- around a, a central way of doing business. How difficult is that? It's, I think because we have done this since the inception of the firm, John, it's just part of our DNA. And th- there's, two, there's two things that are, that are you know, interesting. One, um, one of the main impetuses for setting up um, Lighthouse and um, having external clients from uh, the multifamily family office that I, I, I started at um, was really to grow an international research presence. So I wanted to have an office in you know New York, Chicago, London, Tokyo, Hong Kong um, to, again, be able to find the best local talent that was there. So that's one thing that drove kind of how we're set up today. The second thing is, is a little less intuitive, but because we're based here in Florida and I have been for 25 years, we, we also had to adapt very, very quickly to hurricanes and to, um, and to having backup plans and being able to move quickly and set things up because people forget pre-COVID. If COVID had happened 15 years ago, I think it would have been a disaster for the financial industry. So if we go back 15 years ago, we had to back up our systems on tape and put them in a vault. We would then have to go get those tapes in a vault, fly them up to Chicago or our backup site, um, reestablish them and go forward from there. So I think people forget how big an event like a hurricane or COVID could become. 
But because we had experienced it with hurricanes, we were very used to it. We were very used to adapting. We were used to working remotely. Um, so it hasn't, that's not as big of a shift for us as I think maybe um, others, because it's, it's how I've worked. I work with people around the globe every day and I love it. I love the variety of it, but it is Jen, more conversations like we're having here on, uh, we're filming this as, as well as, uh, you, you know, voice recording it, um, but it has to be a lot more interaction like this. And then there's also a lot of travel uh, that's involved as well, because I do think face-to-face -face interactions are, uh, are important and it's figuring out what the right blend is there, uh, John. But people understand that when they work in these organizations, that the approach is going to be more uh, hybrid. Interesting. So you follow the same approach then as, as Zoom. I read that Zoom, one of the big beneficiaries of, of, of COVID and everyone having to work remotely, they're now looking at having their employees return to the office at least twice in the month, I think it was, or three times in the month. So as you've said, this is something that you had been doing long before um, that, that COVID period, and it's worked well for you. So you're, you're very confident in being able to manage teams remotely as well as having teams working with you locally. Yeah? yeah, very, very comfortable and have had to make sure that the systems are in place to do that. It's, it is still a technology challenge to keep everything working across a global enterprise, but I would say the technology is much better to do that um, today. And uh, particularly, you know, if we have to vacate uh, Florida for uh, hurricane natural disaster. It's not all that different than than being set up for uh, uh, for COVID. And I think organizationally, um, we really didn't miss a beat in COVID. And, th and that's a credit to you, you know our our technology team, our all all the team across the uh, across the firm. But yes, I would say it's within our DNA to work that way. And um, when I started doing this 28 years ago, also, I really had to, the information was very different. I really had to physically go to countries and ask who are the best traders, who are doing interesting investment strategies. I would use a fax machine to set up my appointments because you're at different times. So if I'm trying to get in touch with someone in Asia, yes, I can stay up and do that. But we would fax, uh, you know, I'm going to be there on this date and time. It's so different than today. But really had to get out there and go do it. And I think that also solidified my thinking that you need people on the ground in these locations. So it's not only for, um, uh, you know, market research. It's also for, I'm not going to call it survival. It's not that dramatic. But if something happens in Florida, I want to know the organization's functioning. And I think what's interesting is you've seen Wall Street firms since the tragedy of 9-11 of have actually diversified their human capital base to a variety of different locations. So we have prime brokerage being built up down here in Florida. In Texas, you have back office processing in Jacksonville, Tampa, uh, in Salt Lake City, um, in other parts. And I think that's a smart thing for organizations to do um, if they have a lot of um, uh, you know, human capital to have some different locations uh, where they can work from, diversify that talent, even diversify the thinking a little bit um, has helped us because each of these uh, culturally, each of the countries a little bit different, think differently. And that thinking, that different thinking, I think, um, helps everyone um, hopefully come up with the best solutions and ideas. I mean, Lighthouse is always looking for 
great talent and great portfolio managers. Are there are there any other skill sets beyond portfolio beyond the portfolio that are specifically on your target list and that are particularly difficult to attract at this point in time? As far as um, different skill sets that we need, like technology, or in terms of different personnel attributes that we need, um, I would say everything is competitive, you know, within this space. And um, we, we want really good people, um, again, that want to be here. Um, I don't think any organization is for everyone. And I think that um, younger people can sometimes make that mistake early in their career where they see a firm and they're like, well, I want to go work for that firm. I would always caution people, make sure you know what you're getting into. It may be the perfect fit. It may be a complete disaster, um, but you have to understand there. But sure, I would say that every space is competitive. Um, uh, John, there's no, there's nothing easy that we are um, recruiting for. We get, um, we'll post positions in, in different parts of the firm and, and get lots of resumes. But again, not all of them are perfect and would be a perfect fit for, for us. So I would say it is hard um, really across the board to, uh, you know, to, to find talent. And we want to make sure that when we do hire someone, they're going to have a good career here and hopefully stay here for a long period of time. And I'm really proud that we have uh, a large number of people that have been at Lighthouse for a, a very, very long period of time. And um, I think that helps organizationally and, you certainly need new people coming in and uh, and doing things like that. But um, no, I'm really uh, happy with the team we've assembled here at Lighthouse. You talked about how different it is, your sense of how different it would be if you were to set up the business today as opposed to um, back in 1999. Um, we are seeing some fund launches, um, albeit it is at a slower pace. I think we all agree on that. Um, What's your sense as to how difficult it would be if you were to set up a business now? I think when you go back to, you know, mid-1999 through the first part of, you know, 2000, um, you saw a lot of um, smaller teams and individuals setting up firms um, that were able to do that. You used to hear, you know, you'd read in the press about, uh, you know, uh, two people in a Bloomberg was the hedge fund model. And, and it wasn't far off of that. But also when I started, you know, looking for talent within this business, th there wasn't people that had 10 years of experience in hedge funds at that point in time. You, someone would have had to have started in 1985. And you can go back to the history of hedge funds and the Jones model. You can go back even before that when people were doing arbitrage off convertible bonds uh, back in the you, you know 1920s and things like that. But the industry really, really started to develop, I would say, um, you know, CTAs around the inflationary era of the 70s, and then hedge funds and equity and sec security-specific fixed income, I would say, in the, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and it was just much easier to do so then. Um, now, when you're setting up a proper firm, and if you want to raise institutional capital, um, you're going to have to have a proper uh, back office operation. You're going to have to have a, a chief compliance officer. Um, you're most likely going to have to register um, across, um, uh, you know, with the SEC. And if you're doing business in different jurisdictions, you're going to have to have uh, registration there. Uh, you're going to have to someone uh, to go attract the capital. So a marketing function. So all of these things are um, 
I, I would say are much more difficult than what they were when you had uh, effectively people coming off prop desks. Um, and you did have kind of two people in a Bloomberg uh, that were, were, were setting up these funds and, and going and doing it. And again, I don't think everything was, uh, you know, was perfect back then. And I think that investors in this space have an obligation to do uh, their own due diligence on uh, these funds and the managers and the strategies and things like that. But, um, you know, from day one, um, uh, you, you know, I, I think putting in a proper um, setup is important, but the scale that you need today is much greater. The scale of capital you need today is much greater than, than what it was. Um, and the resources that you need are, are much greater to be taken seriously institutionally. Um, uh, the bar has just been been raised massively. And, and we're starting to see some of the older generation retire or, or think about um, succession. Um, and we've seen some over the last 12 months, we've seen some of the leading industry figures announce they're stepping down or are, are planning to do so. Do you see then a, a, a kind of a, um, a change, a generational change, let's say, across the industry? Are we approaching a generational change? I think we are. I think if you're, if you are running, let's just take an example, like a, a long short fund, it's your name on the door. You've been running it for 20 years. Um, I think it's, it's proven hard to transition uh, uh, those types of firms um, for multi-strategy, multi-PM firms. Um, hopefully you've got, again, diffuse risk taking uh, across the board there. You've got well-built out uh, risk management teams um, and systems there. Um, again, you still need a, a, a transition um, because at the end of the day, generally there, there has to be someone to make, you know, final decisions if there's a tie or you're talking about things. So um, you have to be cognizant of that, but I think it will. And I think it's just a function of when the industry really started to grow, the age of the people that were running the firms at that point in time um, and the age where they are in their, uh, in their life now. And, I think to do this for any length of time, um, because it is kind of a, you know, it's kind of a 24 hour a day activity with markets open and, and depending upon what the, what the firm does, you really need to enjoy it to do it for, for a long period of time. Um, and you need a certain energy level, um, to go do that. So, you know, if your interests are, are elsewhere, you're not as excited about it, um, doing it, then I think it's the right thing to step aside. And I, I certainly would, if I didn't have the, the energy level and certainly get asked like, how long do I want to do this? I've been doing this for 25 years. Look, I, I hope I can do it for another 20 years. Um, but if for some health reason I couldn't do it and I couldn't do a good job for the team here and our clients, then I would absolutely step aside. Or if I woke up one day and just said, I have no interest in the markets, then, then yeah, I, I think it's the right time to, to step aside. So I do think the industry will be facing more of those uh, over, yeah, over the next five years than they have previously. Um, but I think it's just a function of the age of the principles and, and uh, you know, really how long the industry has been in existence. And I think maybe if you just reflect on some of the other developments that we see that are sort of forms of succession planning, and that would be acquisitions by large asset management firms of, of, of particular hedge funds, you know, where we had the TPG acquiring Angelo Gordon recently as an example of that. Um, so, and then you have some of the large 
co-investment managers going off to set up their own funds. So it's like, in some ways, doesn't succession take care of itself? <laughs> um, I think that, I think that it, it, it does. And I think whenever you have a group of creative, dynamic people, um, y- you know, there's going to be different offshoots of the business, different structures of the business. What's the right thing to do for a firm at a point in time? Um, if people have a new idea and something they want to branch into, um, there's constantly, you know, potentially new strategies or, or areas of opportunity, you know, to explore. So these firms are very dynamic. And John, I think you are right. They, the succession does take care of itself a little bit in, in terms of the market opportunity and who's doing what within that and the importance of it. And certain things ebb and flow within this space, as we know. So um, if you look at the opportunity that was in SPACs right after COVID, that opportunity was huge and you needed people to take advantage of it very quickly and assemble a team um, and get after it. Uh, things like that are, are constantly changing. So you need, I think organizationally, you need to have the flexibility to go tackle these things. And also um, regulations can change how this industry operates and how strategies are, are impacted. I always use the example of, you know, utilities Paris trading, which was great in the late 90s. It changed because of deregulation within the utility space. So there's constant examples, you know, banking regulation looks like it's going to change here again. Um, there's constant examples of how regulatory uh, influences change in industry. And I think that's going to continue to unfold. There's obviously new you know, security rules that come into play across all the different geographies that reflect the shape of this industry. So people really need to pay attention to those things that are going on regulatory-wise that affect investment decisions within the industries they're looking at, and then the overall, um, you know, regulations of the industries that we're operating in. So classic example would be the short-selling rule uh, after GFC. If you take out short-selling within the hedge fund industry, uh, it's tough to implement these strategies um, with that. So we really have to stay on top of, of those sorts of changes as well. So it's not only um, succession, but it's the rules of the game uh, that come along with that, that all of us need to pay attention to and be mindful. Um, look, we all are within this ecosystem and you want good operators within this ecosystem. You want reasonable leverage levels, um, all of those things. Um, but it's really important that um, and, and we have taken this very seriously here at Lighthouse over many, many years. You know, we know we operate within a, within a framework and, and we want to be, uh, you know, good participants within that, uh, within that framework uh, of doing so. So I really like this industry. I love alternative investments, love the people I've met within uh, this industry and this space and uh, want to see uh, this continue to succeed for um, a long period of time. I don't think it'll ever be the biggest industry within asset management, but I think it has a place. Um, I think it serves a useful role in a lot of different ways. And, you know, i am been super proud to be part of this industry for, for a long period of time. And possibly one of the greatest changes uh, that might impact us all, uh, including the alternative investment management industry is, um, you know, open AI. Um, and, you know, the impact that may have on on what we all do in the future. What's what's Lighthouse's view on this? Yeah, I, look, I, I think um, I'm an optimist by nature. I think that 
um, AI can have a huge, uh, you know, impact on on healthcare, on discovering new drugs, on the speed of discovery of new drugs. Um, I think that AI will be helpful to society. I, I don't have the doom and gloom that maybe others have on it. I think it will um, help the, the things become more efficient. I think that people would generally argue that having uh, mobile phones and more information at our fingertips um, has helped us in general. I know there's some downsides to it where people talk about the effects of um, social media and, and mental health and things like that. And that should be taken very seriously. But I think that the world is, it's getting better and it's getting more resourceful and abundant over time. And I think AI uh, is another tool that can help do that. I think specifically within the hedge fund space, one of the biggest uses of it would be if people have very unique data sets that they can apply um, this technology and these techniques to, um, I think that can be a uh, a big advantage. Uh, but no, o- overall, I mean, I'm I'm very optimistic. I I hope I'm not sitting here ten years from now and the machines have uh, taken over and we're in the Terminator movie. But uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic than that. And and especially, um, you know, outside of the hedge fund industry, the potential good that AI can uh, uh, you know can bring really to the global uh, you know global population and and tackle you know, some of the most pressing issues that we have. Um, I think any type of technology that we can throw at that is, uh, uh, is, is helpful. Just sticking on your theme of optimism, um, we ask this of all of our guests that, that, that join um, this series of interviews. Could you, on a scale of one to five, tell us how optimistic you are about the hedge fund industry over the coming five years? Five being the most optimistic, say? Yeah, I I would say I'm probably at um, I would say I'm probably at about a four, and the reason for that is um, I think we've seen interest rates normalize. Um, for right now, we're not going back to zero interest rate policy or financial repression. I think financial repression made it hard for some of these strategies uh, to work, suppress volatility, um, all those sorts of things. So I don't think we're heading back that way. So um, I think that's a positive. I think that. There are a lot of really creative, energetic people in this industry that are going to find uh, new techniques and, and new things to do to, to produce uh, profits uh, consistently. So I'm never going to bet against uh, uh, ingenuity. Um, and again, the only reason why I wouldn't give it a five um, is because it is more competitive than it was uh, you know, 25 years ago. Um, that's a good thing probably for... Uh, the markets in general, providing market liquidity efficiency, uh, people taking out, uh, making more efficient markets, I think is is a uh, is a good thing. Um, and you know, hopefully, the world stays an open place from a uh, you know from a regulatory perspective where we can operate you know in all these markets uh, around the around the world. Um, but certainly, uh, you have concerns in certain markets you would operate in. Um, if you had big investments in Russia and what happened between Russia and Ukraine, those investments are, are now gone. Um, are there other places in the world where you need to, uh, you know, be mindful of that? Um, uh, and, you know, we need to be cognizant of those things. So, you know, the playing field just isn't um, necessarily as open from a global cooperation and regulatory standpoint. So need to be mindful um, of that. And then just competition uh, as well as why I wouldn't give it a, uh, a five, um, as opposed to that. But again, I think that um, 
again, there, there are natural incentives within this business to, uh, to go out there and, and find ways to produce uh, consistent profits. And uh, I think, I think uh, individuals and firms are going to do that. Hey, Sean, you're, you're at the top of your field, but you're, you're still working very, very hard. Um, so what's, what's still on your list for, for you professionally, personally? What would you like to accomplish? Yeah, professionally, again, I, I really, I want to deliver results for our clients as consistently as can. And it's a big challenge to do that every day. The markets are always changing. That's what I like about this job. There's always change um, that's going on in, um, in the markets. And you have to adapt to that change. And there's opportunities that come up. And there's risks that you have to take care of. And you have to think of things in, in more of a probability sense than just a pure um, uh, kind of, you know, I'm either right or I'm wrong sense. Um, you know, on, on, if you talk to many traders, there are many good traders out there that actually make money, you know, 50% of the time or less than 50% of the time. A lot of it comes back to risk management. So for me, it's continuing to uh, kind of push the envelope of, uh, um, of, of where we're operating. Um, again, um, continuing to find and attract and retain the best talent uh, that we can globally, continuing to push forward into new markets and new strategies. Um, these are all challenges, um, Jen, but again, really want to deliver. Everyone here wants to deliver for the clients um, and again, wants to have a good career opportunity set and feel like they're they're in control of something and contributing to something. And I think the, the research uh, uh, across all or organizations really points that out, and I don't think any hedge fund firms are all that, uh, you know, all that different from uh, from those things. So I still see lots of challenges out there, John, um, professionally, um, from again from from talent to risk management to, you know, running the firm better, um, all of those things. So it'll never stop. I'll, I'll never never perfect it, and uh, uh, it's a good thing. I, I enjoy it. I really enjoy the challenge. And how about personally? Um, personally, um, I, on the philanthropic side, there's really uh, three things that, that uh, I focus on. Focus on kids and the opportunities that they have afforded to them. Uh, focus on schools as well. So I've sat on the, the board of uh, three schools and education is very important. And then healthcare. And I think that uh, healthcare is critical for everyone. If you're healthy, you can be productive. You can do lots of things. And some people don't have a choice about health um, as well. But I think we continue to get closer, talking about AI, um, talking about uh, individualized medicine, learning more um, about the human body, things like that. I think people are taking care of themselves better. I think food is becoming uh, you know, a little bit more abundant uh, for people. That's not the case everywhere in the world. But really, for me, you know, uh, kids and opportunity, again, education, healthcare are where I like to um, really spend time philanthropically. And again, there's, these are things that aren't, unfortunately, they're not going to go away. Uh, these challenges most likely in my lifetime. So I think I'll be working on them, uh, for the rest of rest of my life. And then, uh, no, personally, I love, um, playing sports. I don't watch sports that much, but I love playing, uh, uh, soccer still. And I, uh, and I still, uh, uh, run, uh, quite a bit. So that's what I do to, to kind of stay healthy and, uh, uh, do some things outside of, uh, you know, outside of work. That's what I like to do. My family, John, is also, you know, by far uh, the most important thing. I, I don't talk about it on these industry type of podcasts, but 
Um, if they're listening to this and I, I don't say that, then I'm crazy for not saying that. But uh, but that's uh, that's really, really important to me. But, uh, you know, just professionally and personally, those are those are some things I work on. Sean, thank you very much for taking time to speak to us today. Um, every good luck and good wish for the future. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And uh, uh, good luck uh, with everything you're working on as well. And, and truly appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Perspectives, done in partnership with KPMG and part of AMA's The Long Short Podcast. We trust you found the discussion both interesting and insightful. You can get the latest episodes by subscribing to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, or streaming directly from AMA.org. Thanks for listening.